It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, DNA, you're in my heart. DNA, in fact, you're in every part of my body. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And how true that is. Yes, it is. Because DNA is truly the blueprint for life. Yeah. Uh, you know what? It feels to me like I've heard you say that before. Uh, you might not have because I don't think I said that last time. I just want to let the listeners in on a little secret. Uh, so the first time we recorded this episode, there was an audio glitch where we lost the first half of it. Yep. Um, so what we're going to be doing now is re-recording part of this episode. I say that in case you're wondering why we might have like a callback joke at the end that calls that makes back to no nothing. Sense. Right. It's right. like we're stuck in a time loop. Like we went through that nebula with Khan and then what happened? We're definitely not trying to have like some sort of inside joke that you're not privy to. You would have been privy to it had the technical glitch not happened. That being said, what are we talking about today, Joe? Well, we're talking about <laughs> Mr. DNA. <laughs> someone, someone's been watching the Jurassic World uh, trailer and just Where did into... you come from? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always love that moment in Jurassic Park where Mr. DNA yeah. comes out and they explain to you about the wonders of DNA. But everybody's heard about DNA by now. It's yeah. It's no longer a big surprise. 
that we've uh, that we've got these coding segments in the cells in our body that tell us what kind of body plans to produce. They make the proteins that right. make our bodies. And so we get our traits, our sort of inherited physical traits from our DNA. Mm-hmm. And this has long led people to wonder, like, wow, could I make myself better if I could just change my DNA? Could I head uh, off any disorders or diseases? Uh, more importantly, I mean, I'd, and this is a thing that we definitely said the first time, if we were going to change something about you, Jonathan, oh, yeah. it would absolutely be the color of your beard. That's right. That yeah. is something we did say. Purple beard. We, I, it would need to be purple. I'm so I'm so pleased that you remember that. Now, I, was, I was listening back to the garbled audio that we had, and we got to the point about my purple beard, and I thought... I don't have to worry about that being talked about again because it's not in our notes, but sucker. Darn it. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, the technology that we have to change something like the color of someone's beard right now is like bleach and dye. Yeah. It's not something about, you know, changing the innate properties of me so that I'm growing purple beard hair. Uh, right. But if we want to change other traits, like, for example, diseases like, like cancer, uh, something that is heritable, sure. uh, you can't just Drink bleach and die, or no. I mean, you could, but I don't recommend that. That's no, not a medical treatment. Don't, Please don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. No, no, no. We're talking about a more serious scenario where mm-hmm. imagine that um, we've reached a level of genetic sophistication where you can produce an embryo that's right. going to be your child, mm-hmm. and you can look at the DNA of that embryo and analyze it, run it through the computer, and say, oh, no. It looks like this child is going to have a genetic condition which makes him or her prone to any number of, you know, diseases, something that that we wouldn't want for this child that the embryo is going to grow to be. Right. So could we make a little edit and fix the DNA yeah. so that the child doesn't have to suffer from this disease. If you could do such a thing, obviously lots of people would want that opportunity. Right. And we've talked about this very subject a couple of times in previous episodes, including one about gene therapy. But the reason why we're bringing it up again now is that we wanted to really focus on a system that makes the or potentially could make editing genes far simpler, more efficient, less expensive than previous methods and therefore has the potential to revolutionize the way we work with genes. Uh, and because of this revolutionary quality, this new system is being heralded with caution. Right. Uh, we should say lots of scientists have recently spoken up saying, hey, we need to we need to take stock of where we are in mm-hmm. gene editing technology right now and and make sure that we're taking all the proper precautions and sort of treading carefully on this ground because we get into some pretty weird territory yeah. when you talk about editing genes. But let, let's talk about the new system itself. Well, here's the crazy thing. The system, if you think of it as the actual process, is not new. The new part is that we're employing it or we can employ it. Or but, that we know that it exists at all. Yeah. The 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 cool thing about this, the super cool thing about this is that it's a natural process that was observed many years ago, but not understood until relatively recently. Yeah. And so this process is known as the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Yeah. And the CRISPR-Cas9 system is based on a naturally occurring system found 
in bacteria. Mm-hmm. In uh, It's an immune process in bacterial cells. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. And CRISPR is not referring to some kind of refrigeration system within <laughs> bacteria. It's an acronym. Right. It's an acronym for clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. And that refers to sections of DNA code in these bacteria uh, and how they use this system to protect themselves from viruses. Yeah. Uh, So the blocks of repeated gene sequences were first observed in bacterial cells uh, and mentioned in a paper by Japanese researchers in the Journal of Bacteriology in 1987. And at the time, scientists didn't know what they did. They're like, no, we saw these things. We don't know what the purpose is. Right. It wouldn't be until several years later that more uh, observations would give us insight into what was actually happening. A couple of decades, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So we now know that these are used to create a system within the bacteria that protects the bacteria from viruses. And it's actually what's known as an adaptive immune system. Now, what is that? So adaptive means that you are uh, building up like you're 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 constantly evolving and tweaking your your immune system so that you can fight off a broader array of potential pathogens. Uh, right. That's why vaccines work, because they give your body just a little bit of a inactive virus to look at, to observe, to take a little bit of the protein from the virus shell from and to incorporate that into, into your immune system so that in the future, your immune system can recognize that type of virus and say, like, no, thank you, sir. Exactly. Yeah. And and so this is sort of bacteria's approach. Actually, it's not sort of. It is bacteria's approach to fighting off viruses. If a bacteria survives uh, an encounter with a new type of virus, it adds that information to its quote unquote like database of viral info. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and that's that's what these little CRISPR strands are. They're, they're these strands of, of little bits of repeating DNA that have little bits of viral codes smushed in representing all of the viruses that that bacteria or that bacteria's ancestors has run across. Right, because it's inheritable. So this is really interesting for lots of different reasons. Okay, so to get into how we could use this bacterial immune system uh, or a version of it to edit genes, let's look at how it actually works in in the field, in real life. Right. What happens when a bacterium that has this defense mechanism encounters a virus? Okay, here's how it goes down. You got your virus. Yeah. Now, your virus, uh, imagine that you've got a little, it looks like a little spacecraft. Uh, especially if you played Yars Revenge. Watched a, an Atari documentary recently. Anyway, so you've got this little virus. Inside this shell is viral DNA. Mm-hmm. And the way a virus replicates is it ends up infecting a host cell. So uh, some viruses uh, target very specific cells and ignore anything else. And it's all through protein markers. Anyway, the virus lands on a host cell and it, inj- it injects its own DNA into the host cell. That DNA essentially hijacks all the assets inside the host cell to start replicating more viral uh, DNA and virus shells. So it's essentially telling the host uh, cell, hey, I know what you're doing is totes important, but you got to drop it and make some of this stuff ASAP. And that's what the host cell does. It's, it's getting new instructions and it just starts churning out more and more uh, uh, viruses. Until, you know, more uh, instances of the same virus, I guess I should say, until you get to a point where the little virus uh, shells all break free from the host cell, 
killing it in the process. And then they go on their merry way to do the same thing to other host cells. And that's how the virus spreads. So that's how a virus typically would attack uh, a, a bacterium. But let's say that the bacterium actually has this adaptive immune system we just mentioned. What's going on there? Well, assuming that the bacterium or one of its ancestors had encountered that particular type of virus before, it's going to have a strand in its DNA that matches part of the viral uh, DNA. And when it detects the uh, the intrusion of viral DNA, that uh, the, the bacterium's DNA will end up creating a strand of RNA, actually two strands. One strand of that RNA will have uh, pairs, uh, well, half of a pair <laughs> uh, that you would find in a double helix that match up to the viral DNA. Yeah, sort of think about the way that a key is made to fit the pins in a certain lock. Right. Like the key has these particular series of bumps and grooves that will fit into that lock. Yeah. This immune system device has RNA that's like a key that fits the virus. Yeah. So uh, if you think of a... a uh, DNA like, a, a you know, you've got this double helix. If you imagine you straighten it out so it looks like it's a ladder and each rung of the ladder is actually uh, a pair that join together, the RNA is one half of that ladder that can match up to half of the uh, virus DNA. Now, it creates an enzyme. Um, it's actually a it's a protein, the, the Cas9 protein. It creates a few things, but the Cas9 protein is the one that's important yeah. for this discussion. Known as an endonuclease. And it ends up unwinding, separating uh, the, the viral DNA so that the RNA created by the bacterium will join up to the viral DNA. And it also will snip the viral DNA at a very specific point. And this essentially deactivates the viral DNA, killing it. So that the viral attack fails. It is not able to hijack the cell's operations and create more viruses, uh, which is, you know, pretty awesome. And also, like we were mentioning before, if it happens to be the case where the bacterium or its ancestors has never encountered that particular virus, but it survives the attack, then for that information gets added to the bacterium's DNA so that future encounters with that virus will be handled with extreme prejudice for that bacterium <laughs> and all its descendants. Uh, right. And, and a word about these, these, these Cas proteins and specifically Cas9, which is the important one. They, uh, that stands for CRISPR associated proteins. Yeah. And number nine. At number nine, like a like love potion number nine, yes, and or probably <laughs> not. This is like death potion number nine. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> uh, the the CRISPR arrays make a bunch of these different Cas proteins that all have different jobs, like like integrating those new bits of those like wanter, wanted poster sequences mm -hmm. into the, the the CRISPR strand. And Cas9's job, which it is really good at, is uh, both to unzip the DNA and to snip the ends at that specific location mm -hmm. along the helixes. He, he, helices. helices. Yeah, yeah. So this endonuclease, this Cas9 is, it's kind of like a little pair of scissors. A lot of people have compared yeah, it to. Yeah. Molecular scissors is can, what a lot of people say. Can go in and make little snips and cuts to DNA, which. Right. Obviously, once you see something like that in action in, uh, in the microbial world, you start to think, huh. I wonder if we could take advantage of that. Yeah, because it's able to cut it at a precise location and cut at the same location across both of the uh, helices, as we were saying, so that you have a, an extreme level of control, which is really important if you want to do something like target a very specific 
strand of DNA or section of a strand of DNA, I should say. Uh, right. And this is especially interesting because uh, research has shown that this CRISPR-Cas9 smackdown of genes may also occur within a bacterial cell itself. It's not just in application to viruses. Uh, in research that was published in Nature in 2013 from a team out of Emory University, a particular bacteria was shown to, to use CRISPR-Cas9 to shut down one of its own lipoproteins. And, and okay, in bacteria, lipoproteins help the bacteria attach to a host cell, but they also trigger inflammatory responses in a host, which triggers the host's immune system, which sucks for the bacteria. Um, by shutting off this lipoprotein, it lets the bacteria kind of fly under the radar, multiplying without interference and biding its time until it goes pathogenic. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Another cool thing, this is almost a tangent, but a cool side effect of this is that you can look at uh, a you know the the DNA of a bacteria and or or of bacteria I guess I should say uh, and be able to tell a lot about it including you know which viruses it has encountered in the past uh, and this kind of ends up being a fingerprinting uh, approach so let's say that there is uh, a bacterial outbreak somewhere, some some sort of illness that is due to bacteria. For example, uh, let's call you know food poisoning. Mm -hmm. We here at How Stuff Works are familiar with that particular idea. <laughs> um, so let's say that you have an outbreak of food poisoning. You could end up uh, analyzing the bacteria, and by looking at the this information, which viruses it has encountered in the past, you could possibly use that information to trace it back to wherever the source of the food poisoning was. So it's actually got some interesting forensic uh, yeah, uh, yeah. uses. I identification processes. It's being used like that by the cultured dairy industry to check whether the strains of helpful bacteria that they use uh, in order to make cheese and yogurt and delicious stuff like that that requires bacteria for the process uh, to check whether their bacteria are immune against common viruses. They can then select bacteria, uh, colonies of bacteria that are stronger and more likely to remain effective at driving these processes. So it's it's like a more technical bacterial version of breeding really healthy animals to make sure that their offspring are healthy. <laughs> I'm just imagining like the the Saruman of cheese over his factory breeding the the Urukai of bacteria to make delicious cheese. I don't get the we... reference. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Says the guy with the Lord of the Rings tattoo. tattoo <laughs> Tonight we dine on cheese. <laughs> All right, so where does the gene editing come in? Well, in 2012 a group led by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier and apologies if I mispronounced that. I did my best. Uh, but they published uh, findings in science that the CRISPR system could be used to edit any kind of DNA you want through, quote, RNA programmable genome editing. And that was in a paper called A Programmable Dual RNA Guided DNA Endonuclease in Adaptive Bacterial Immunity. Zippy. Yeah, so subsequent <laughs> studies have shown that it works not only in bacteria with CRISPR-based immune systems, but in all kinds of organisms and potentially in humans. So with CRISPR-based gene editing, it's a very similar process to what we just described with the bacteria fighting off a virus, except instead of trying to identify a virus and kill the 
DNA so that you don't have to worry about viruses uh, replicating inside mm-hmm. a cell. What it's looking for is a specific strand that uh, relates back to a a gene that you want to target. So in other words, we ma- we could manufacture RNA that matches up to a specific gene and uh, use the same sort of process, this this dual these dual strands of RNA, one of which is matched to the gene to go. Uh, the same sort of thing happens. It'll it'll end up use, creating the Cas9 protein that'll end up unraveling the, the helix and uh, the RNA will bind to whichever gene you specifically wanted to target and it can snip the ends of the helix exactly where you want it and thus you can uh, isolate a specific gene and it's really not hard to do. Yeah, uh, especially compared to previous methods. So we we have a couple of capabilities here. One of them is the simplest, which is just to knock out genes you don't want. Right, just to so see what can, happens. Yeah, you, you can, like, deactivate a gene, essentially. Right, so I know we've used an analogy to explain genes before, and I'm going to go ahead and rely on that again because I think it's helpful. If you imagine your genes like a giant switchboard, and the switches have on and off, so whether a gene is on or off, uh, determines whether that gene will ultimately be expressed. However, it gets a lot more complicated from that point forward. Right, because it's not always true that one gene directly correlates to one trait. I mean, right. maybe in some cases, but in a lot of cases, you have complexes of genes that work together to create complexes of effects. And right. not all of them really go together in a logical way, like... I mean, this is a pure imaginative example, but it's the equivalent of like how fast your toenails grow being connected to your eye color, being connected to uh, whether or not you get cancer. Yeah. And and these things are really complicated because uh, nature, because stuff is messy and, uh, you know. Nothing was really created in our gene sequences anticipating that we were going to want to go in and just flick switches on right. and off. So, yeah, yeah, nature doesn't owe us an explanation. No. Yeah. So, in other words, isolating these genes and being able to, to turn them off can tell us more about what what is the the role of that gene and how does it affect the rest of the system, right? So that that's really important information for us to have. Sure. But in addition to being able to just knock out and turn off specific genes, we could also make changes to genes. Yeah. More accurately, I should maybe say changes to the genome. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is important in case you identify a gene that's undergone some form of mutation and is not... Uh, the the way you would have expected it to be and that it could potentially cause harm, you may wish to be able to go and snip that part out and replace it with a healthy gene. Right. OK, well, we now have this system, this CRISPR-Cas9 system for editing genes, but this is not the only method there has ever been for editing genes. So what makes this one an especially big deal? The biggest deal is that it's way easier like like way like easier. way easier. <laughs> yeah. It's incredibly precise, efficient, uh, apparently really cost effective and simpler than the previous methods that have been employed to do essentially the same thing because it goes about it in a very different way. Right. Uh, right. So the two leading types of gene editing right now, other than CRISPR, are zinc finger nucleases, ZFNs, and transcription activator like effector nucleases or talons. Talon. Talons. Talons sounds much better than ziffins. Ziffins. 
Um, but both, both of these depend upon creating a thing, a protein, which is what a nuclease is, uh, that will bind to the sequence of DNA that you're interested in deactivating. So your ZFNs and your talons are only as good as your binding agent. Uh, if it's not specific enough or not strongly attracted enough to the sequence that you're targeting, it won't be very effective and could even have dangerous consequences. Like think, think of your word processors search and replace function. It's really hard to create a protein that will bind to the DNA equivalent of a whole word, like like tomatoes, okay? If your protein only binds to, say, tom or toe or toes, then that binding agent could latch on to a lot of unintended bits of DNA by accident, which is potentially really bad times. Yeah, yeah. So very different from those approaches, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right. So by making this type of gene editing and research much faster, easier, more efficient, and in a lot of cases, more precise. The positive side is a lot of researchers have pointed out that this could speed up research on genetic disorders. Oh, like, yeah. You know, any inherited genetic condition that we want to cure, like cystic fibrosis or uh, muscular dystrophy, you know, uh, heritability for a propensity to develop certain cancers, anything like that. Yeah. Like, like dramatically oh, yeah. speed that up to a point that's that's almost hard to imagine compared to what the uh, the progress had been before. Uh, sure. The downside is that it's really easy. Yeah. So it might be so easy that we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And finally, it could also be the method that we use to, you know, hack ourselves, like to to change things about people. This is the one that's raising some alarms. The yeah. idea of being Were able we to... to decide we would go down this road. Right. Mm -hmm. Where we Yeah, could... it could potentially go beyond like, let's make sure no one has cancer and go into like, let's make sure everyone has the specific visual traits that we want right. or whatever it Essentially is. Essentially non therapeutic right. uses for the technology. And that's something that could be a future possibility, but it's one of those things that raises a lot of ethical questions. And now we have to actually start looking at those ethical questions because something, again, that was hypothetical a few years ago is now something that could be a reality maybe a few years from now. Uh, yeah. And it's not just, uh, you know, lay people who are disinterested in science as a whole who are freaked out about this. No, there are actual scientists who are legitimately uh, concerned about this. Yeah, there have been at least two high profile uh, calls from scientists in the past month or so. Well, in the past month from the time we're recording this, right, mm -hmm. which, uh, which is April of 2015. Yep. Yeah. So in uh, March of 2015, on March 12th, 2015, a group of scientists published a comment in Nature basically calling for a moratorium on editing the human germline. And this is a specific uh, specific portion of the application of CRISPR. They're, they're, they're not saying like, like, halt all CRISPR forever. Yeah. Um, the, the human germline is specifically human reproductive cells that can pass on uh, heritable traits. Uh, it, it can it can lead to changes in generations down the line. Yeah, right. yeah. So what what is the fuss? Like well, what are they concerned about? The big one is just that we don't know enough to know what consequences will come from those sort of actions if we were to alter the germline. We don't know which ones might be safe, which ones could be dangerous, which could har harm 
uh, future generations and uh, without knowing that it is irresponsible to uh, to to experiment in that field now. Yeah. And that's the real concern is that, you know, in, in our efforts to do things like uh, head off potential disease in children, which obviously is something that is a, a an honorable pursuit, the uh, trying to eradicate disorders and diseases that could affect uh, the unborn is a big uh, honorable pursuit. But if in doing that, we end up creating more problems down the line, then obviously that was not necessarily the best choice. And that was really where their their objections came in. Uh, so I think it's completely understandable. I, I, I agree that there there needs to be caution. And again, like you were saying, Lauren, they're not suggesting that we completely abandon using oh, no. this methodology. No. I, I think it's yeah. more like, well, hold up for a minute. Yeah. We need to figure out what we're doing before we do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with new human life. Yeah. And especially, especially when you're dealing with uh, the, the types of cells in new humans that they can pass on to their new humans down the line. Right. And they, they even mentioned scenarios like imagine that you were going to target a particular type of DNA that's going to be found within an embryo. And let's say the cells divide between when you have uh, started your treatment and when it's actually over. It may be that some cells have been affected and the the offending DNA has been clipped out. Mm -hmm. But in other cells, it hasn't. And then you've got a genetic mosaic and it could potentially cause really severe issues down the line. We just don't know. In fact, we don't even know what it might do. Mm -hmm. And that is in itself uh, unethical and problematic when you're talking about human life. Mm -hmm. So that's where the real concerns come in. And um, they, you know, I think they raised some good points and they, they weren't the only ones. There was another group as well, right? Yeah, there was another comment in Science in March of 2015 uh, from a group that included the Nobel Prize winning David Baltimore of Caltech, but also... Jennifer Doudna, one of the creators of the CRISPR technique from that 2012 paper. And uh, there's an actual quote that I would like to read from that where it says the group wishes to initiate an informed discussion of the uses of genome engineering technology and to identify proactively those areas where current action is essential to prepare for future developments. We recommend taking immediate steps toward ensuring that the application of genome engineering technology is performed safely and ethically. So, again, they're crying out for a responsible approach to research and saying, look, this tool is amazing and has the potential to make amazing advances in medicine and to truly help out human beings. But we need to make certain that we pursue that in a way that is going to be ethical and responsible and not put people in danger just because we now have the access to this amazing tool. Uh, sure. And and. Governments are kind of already on this. Uh, there was a, a review that was done in 2014 by bioethicist Tetsuya Ishii of Hokkaido University, um, and it found that 29 of the 39 countries investigated already do have laws or guidelines that ban germline gene editing in humans. Mm -hmm. So, 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 so that's pretty covered. Um, but even considering that, there's just a general concern within the scientific community that even if 
most researchers are responsible and ethical and follow these sorts of guidelines, that that any breach into less responsible or, or non-therapeutic modifications could cause a public outcry that would lead to a huge crackdown on, on the funding and regulation of these genetic technologies, which so, would obviously not be of benefit to anybody. Right. So so part of it is saying we shouldn't do this because it's wrong. And even if you don't think it's wrong, other people do think it's wrong and it's going to mess everything up for everybody if you do it. So just don't do it. Yeah. I, I can get behind that. I, you know, we, we get to a point now where we can talk about how we feel about this. I'm pretty much in line with the concerns that the scientists have, have, have raised. I think that this is definitely an amazing uh, technology that could end up helping us in ways we can't even comprehend right now. But I also think that obviously we need to use some uh, some logic, some uh, you know compassion, some rationality when we approach this, and and not go crazy with it just because it opens up lots of opportunities. Yeah, as with um, as with any new potential therapy, I think there you know there are competing interests. I mean, you could look at it from the other point of view and say, well, what if you're uh, somebody who is uh, who, who has a heritable, you know, trait that causes genetic uh, defects that can, I don't know, like kill a child or something, mm-hmm. and you want to reproduce. I mean, you might be one of the people who's saying, like, no, I, you know, I want these therapies sooner. I want them available so that I could feel that my, you know, the child I have with my partner would be safe. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can see how somebody would could take that point of view as well. Like, you know, they, they want haste in a way uh, because this really does matter in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the concerns voiced by these scientists are, yes, obviously quite valid ones. I, I mean, I don't think we're in any position to disagree with that whatsoever. Oh, sure. No, I mean, I mean, once you get that full picture of like, well, we could stop this one thing from happening, but it could have all of these unintended consequences that we don't even know about, that we're not even aware of. Um, and so I, I would say that, you know, this is really cool. This is just unimaginably terrific. Uh, but also... Yeah, let's 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 proceed with caution. Let, let's co-develop uh, more knowledge about the human genome. Let's figure out how all of these things are interacting with each other and not dive into anything before we know what we're doing. Yeah. Well, let me ask you guys another question. Let's let's assume let's let's put ourselves into the far off distant future where we have a full understanding and appreciation for uh, genetics. Let's let's assume that that eventually happens. And we now know how to proceed without causing uh, uh, unintended consequences. Obviously, we're in an idealized world at this point. So, at, so we're sort of imagining at this point the human genome is open source, and we understand it as well as we understand the lines of code in a computer program. Yeah, and that and that we can be we can be reasonably confident that any changes we make, we will be making in such a way as to not cause harm to uh, unborn generations. Okay. At that stage where we have that confidence, do you think that the designer babies issue, do you, do you see that as being a bad thing where parents could make decisions upon 
uh, how their babies may, you know, the traits those babies might exhibit in the future. I think that's a really interesting question. I think you're sort of saying, like, if we, we rule out the possibility of unintended effects, we just set that aside for right. a minute. Is it inherently wrong to mess with nature? Yeah, that's the question I'm getting at. Uh, what what do, what is your personal <laughs> opinion mm. on that? I don't know. I mean, that, that's a that's a tough decision. I feel like I would personally feel very iffy about doing that myself. But then again, I don't know if I would feel comfortable telling somebody else they couldn't do that. See, it's kind of a moot question for me. I've decided not to have kids, but assuming that I were to have kids, I almost feel like. Um, that the idea of being able to choose things is no more sinister than leaving it up to chance. Mm. So, you know, like saying like, well, this is this, you know, whether you can determine ahead of time. Now, granted, you know, you're not giving the kid any say in the matter, but the kid doesn't have any say in the matter either way. It's just, is it wrong for the parent to have that input or is it, you know, is it better wrong to just to... roll the dice? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of questions wrapped up in that. And, and you know, depending on different people's ideologies of what makes a better baby, like like what traits they would want to instill in their future generations. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it gets into really weird, sticky territory. Like are are the things that I think might be good for my potential kids actually good? Uh you know, right. would we want would we want Kim Kardashian being able to choose how her babies come out? I mean, you know, this is sorry, no. To be able to program like uh, I want hyper obedient children who <laughs> don't question anything. I well, say. there's also the question about social pressures that could come in. About, oh, you know, sure. And, and of course, there's science fiction that that obviously oh, has, has tread all of this. Yeah. yeah I mean, and, and also you get dangerously close to weird stuff like eugenics. Like, yeah, is, no. is there's some definite, like, huge ethical questions here. When you look at it from an individual basis, it seems simple. But then you got to remember, we're not all – we don't all exist in a vacuum unto ourselves. Mm -hmm. We all work together in various cultures and, and societies. And there are other uh, factors that will apply to these kind of decisions. They're never going to be something that is completely made by a person, I think, uh, at least not – if it's if it's a technology that's widely available, I mean, obviously, there would be other questions, too. Like, let's say that the technology becomes widely available. I'm sure it would be one that would become widely available for specific segments of the population. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. And not could afford so. it. Yeah. Right. And then you've got a disparity between, you know, you talk about haves and have nots. I mean, this is why we have so many amazing science fiction stories that are based around this. Those are really kind of like they're explorations of, of human uh, behavior, human psyche, human society and culture. And they ultimately are important because assuming that technology and our scientific knowledge continues to improve, we could potentially arrive at a day where it's truly relevant. It's not just speculative. So that's why I wanted to ask the question of you guys. Like, again, from an individual basis, I'm like, oh, I'm totally OK with it. It's when I start expanding that to everybody and what that might mean for the future, where I think, Maybe I'm not that okay with it. And ultimately for me, it's moot. So it's kind of a mean thing yeah. to ask anyway. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm just imagining a world in which even like 
even like in a D&D game, if everyone could tweak their dice rolls to to roll their perfect character. I knew a guy like, who would do that. How obnoxious would that be? He'd be like, I'm just going to roll these 17 six-sided die and pick the three top ones. <laughs> like, like, oh, you know, really leaving things up to chance. Uh, this is a, kind of a, a, you know, obviously one of those ongoing conversations, but it is one that we need to have seriously because we're, again, approaching the, an era when this is some of these things are, are potentially possibilities. So I'm curious what our listeners think, too. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, do you do you automatically think like, well, I, I'm perfectly cool with uh, addressing things like disorders and diseases, but I don't ever want to think of this in a non-therapeutic sense? Do you think the hacking the body is something that needs to be um, on the table as long as it's got certain qualifiers. Maybe you think there need to be no qualifiers at all. I want to hear what they think. So send us an email. Let us know what your thoughts are on this subject. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Also remember you can suggest future topics. You can uh, leave any other comments or questions you have. Uh, you can also get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. At Twitter and Google+, we are fwthinking. On Facebook, just search FW Thinking in the search bar. We will pop right up. Leave us a message there. We read all of these, so make sure you send that stuff to us, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind-the-scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Snakes, 
Zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.